This is Smarter Cars, a podcast about autonomous vehicles. Welcome to Season 3 of Smarter Cars. This is your host, Michelle Kairouz. Today we're talking with Harry Campbell, also known as the Rideshare Guy. We're talking about all things rideshare, looking at it from different perspectives of the driver, the consumer, and the city. We're talking about how cities are different with the advent of Uber and Lyft, and how some of the impacts on traffic might be mitigated. Please enjoy this wide-ranging conversation with Harry Campbell. Harry, welcome to the show. Hey, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So can you start by telling us about your business, uh, what your mission is, what you do, and why you're the rideshare guy? Yeah, definitely. Well, it is funny because uh, when I first started my business, I didn't put a lot of thought or effort or really energy into picking the name. You know, I kind of just wrote down a list of names and picked the rideshare guy. And it ended up uh, being a pretty good moniker for my business and kind of what it has grown to be. And really, for me, I started driving for Uber and Lyft part time all the way back in 2014. And pretty quickly, I just started documenting my experience, what it was like to be a driver on my blog, which I named the rideshare guy. And uh, I have to say that the timing worked out really well because Uber and Lyft started exploding and started hiring tons of drivers who didn't know what they were doing. And a lot of them started coming to my site to get information. And so over time, we've really built things from the blog into a podcast, into a YouTube channel, courses for drivers. I just released a book last year for drivers. So basically anywhere that drivers are going for content and trying to learn about being a rideshare driver, uh, you know, I'm there to sort of help them and support them and give them all the resources they might need. Great. So you're focused on helping drivers for Uber, Lyft, and other rideshare services, yeah. It seems like the interests of drivers are different from the interests of consumers who might ride in these services mm-hmm. and different from the interests of Uber or Lyft as companies and also different perhaps from the interests of cities as a whole. Can you talk a bit about kind of what the driver interests are and how you see them as different? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a a good question. And, you know, we can definitely talk about the interrelation between all the different parties. But I think at the at the start, the important thing to understand is that I think there's always been and there sort of always will be a bit of an inherent tension between drivers and the companies they work for. So Uber and Lyft, the, the TNCs, the transportation network companies. And the reason for that is because as a driver, you know, I'm really looking out for my best interest. Uber and Lyft are looking out for their best interests. But what's in my best interest as a driver is to make money, right? It's to go out there to get as many rides as possible. So that means that I actually want as few other drivers out on the road um, because that means that I'll have more rides, I'll make more money. I want passengers to pay surge pricing because that means I'll make more money. Whereas on the company side, you know, they actually sometimes want and oftentimes want the opposite. One of the most important metrics for these businesses is the ETA. So when you go to request a ride, they want every passenger to see a two to four minute or a two to five minute ETA. They want that driver to be close so that you don't open the app and see no, no drivers available or a driver that's too far and, you know, have a poor experience or maybe switch to a different service. So that's sort of, you know, I think a, a quick uh, little insight at a high level into how the, those two parties work together. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And then when you 
when you think about it from the consumer perspective, it is a little bit more aligned with what, how you're describing Uber and Lyft in the sense that they want to have a great experience. They want Definitely. the ride to be cheap and to come quickly. Um, but obviously there's kind of this balance. I mean, the reason that they're, they're network companies is that they're creating a marketplace. So they need, you know, the prices can't be too high and then there aren't any riders and then you won't make any money as a driver either. So right and i think what's what's interesting though is that it's hard for the individual driver to see network or large-scale effects so for example right if uber if you go and talk to a bunch of drivers and you ask them what they care about and what's the number one thing they complain about a lot of them will say pay i'm not paid enough or i feel like i should be paid more and if you ask them what their solution is the simple solution may be to raise rates that sounds great now my per mile and my per minute rate that a driver gets paid off will be higher but on uber's end that's going to have a you know sort of negative impact on the demand but as a driver i don't really see that negative you know i'm not going to see a four percent drop in the overall number of rides that are happening in los angeles you know especially if i'm already targeting the busy times and places i may see no drop i just see you know more money if they raise rates and less money if they lower rates it's kind of interesting like i wonder how much of a drop in overall business there would have to be for individual drivers to feel it. So let's just take New York York City as an example. I mean, we're seeing this minimum wage, um, essentially price increase being required by the government uh, in New York rather than a a rate increase being uh, put in place by companies. Um, How are people responding to that? Is there an impact on drivers? Yeah, well, I mean, I think I actually have heard from some drivers, for example, in New York, that they feel like they're getting less rides. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it was interesting because some data came out yesterday that actually kind of uh, contrasted with that and said that actually the price increase hasn't had a big effect, big effect. So, you know, some of the uh, researchers, I know Bruce Schaller is one of the guys who uh, studies the New York City taxi and rideshare, uh, you know, sort of statistics really closely, because the unique thing about New York City, it's sort of like a research paradise because it's the only city uh, that's more heavily regulated. So uh, you have to have TLC licensing and commercial insurance as an Uber or Lyft driver in New York City. But what it also means is that all the companies have to submit their data. So numbers of trips and number of drivers to the city. And then that data is available available publicly. So another guy, Todd Schneider, posts it all and kind of aggregates all of this, these, you know, complex spreadsheets into nice and easy to read graphs. So if you're ever interested, that's a good resource. Yeah. And so, um, so you're saying that the, the data is not showing that the price increase has affected the, the New York market. Right. It, it's it's sort of pretty early. You know, it's only a couple months in and it doesn't seem like it's having a huge effect. And I think that, you know, you could probably argue either way. I'm sure that there's definitely a certain point if you continue raising prices, people will, uh, you know, start to ride less. But I think what we've, we're sort of seeing is that people are really coming to rely on these services. And so, you know, um, Uber and Lyft have created a lot of demand. So if you look, for example, in New York at the number of taxi trips before Uber and Lyft, it might have been, you know, four or five hundred thousand a day. And now taxis are doing two or three hundred thousand less. But the overall number of trips has gone way up, you know, across taxis and ride shares. So not only have Uber and Lyft taken some of that market share from taxi, but they've also created a lot of new demand. And I think that, you know, people are now relying on it in a lot of ways. And, you know, maybe they 
are relying on it to go to the bar, but <laughs> they're still relying on it to go out and to have fun. And, you know, that's something that maybe they are still willing to pay for, even if the prices go up a little. Right. So um, let's turn back to drivers. What what are the most important factors? You said, you know, drivers just really, you know, obviously want to maximize their their yeah. revenue and take home pay. What are the most in factor, the important factors for drivers in terms of doing well, making money? Is it location or? Yeah, I mean, I think in general that, you know, the, the crazy thing about being a driver and really in the rideshare industry is just that there's so much variability and we sort of see at, at a high level where you're driving actually has a big impact on your earnings. So if you're in a city like San Francisco, if you're in a city like L.A., the opportunity and just the earnings potential as a driver is much greater than a lot of the smaller to mid-tier size cities. So that's kind of the first thing and not a lot of drivers can control where they live. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, that's a benefit to people that live in San Francisco, although, of course, there is higher cost of living in a lot of those big cities. So some of that balances out. But after that, I think that there's two big things that kind of affect your earnings. It's when and where you drive. So the if you drive the busier times, Friday, Saturday nights are very busy. Commuting hours during the week are very busy. That's also when Uber and Lyft tend to offer the biggest weekly incentive bonuses to drivers. You know, hey, get out on the road during these times and places. Places and we'll pay you extra because they want to make sure they have enough uh, supply to meet demand. So that makes sense. And then the other thing that we see, though, is experience. And, you know, we did a survey uh, last year, and this is something that my whole business is sort of uh, predicated on, the fact that the more you know and the more strategy you use and the more you kind of learn these systems and tricks and hacks and tips and all of that, the more money you make. So I was kind of happy to see that drivers <laughs> with more experience actually made, you know, $5 an hour more or reported $5 an hour more on average than brand new drivers with zero to 500 trips and I think that makes sense because, you know, when, when you're out there and you're just getting started, uh, there is a lot to learn and you kind of, depending on, you know, how cutthroat you are, you start to learn a lot of the tips and tricks of what it takes to be a driver. And, you know, you might not be able to out earn another driver by three or four times, but I definitely think that there's some drivers who are probably making double what other drivers are just because of the strategies and times and places they drive and things like that. Right. What about a, a focus on reducing expenses? Obviously, there's kind of two parts to the equation. The driver, you know, earns a certain amount yeah. of money and then has to expend a certain amount of money for gas and maintenance and, and things like that. I know Lyft has come out with some some things to try to help drivers reduce expenses. What are yeah. you seeing on, on that front? Yeah, it sounds like you may have even listened to my interview with Lyft COO, uh, John McNeil. That was one of the things that I just interviewed him on my podcast. And that was one of the things he talked about a lot is that that's a big focus of Lyft's going forward is to, you know, reduce the expenses. If you look at kind of the, the macro trend on the driver's side of earnings, it's gone down over time, right? It's now cheaper than ever to take an Uber or Lyft uh, as a passenger. So what that means for drivers is that they're now getting paid, uh, you know, basically less than they've ever been paid. But neither company uh, until Lyft recently has really looked to attack the expense side of things. And why I think that's interesting is because as a driver, you could be driving, you know, an SUV that you got a terrible deal on and, you know, a really high finance rate. And it could be costing you, you know, maybe five, six, seven dollars per hour when you add up all your expenses and costs uh, to drive that vehicle on the platform versus a driver who had good credit and bought a used Toyota 
Prius and is getting great gas mileage, that car might only be two to three dollars per hour, you know, in expenses. So it really does matter, you know, what type of car, uh, you know, what type of car and what your expenses are as a driver. And especially as pay has come down, that expenses, you know, so drivers report earning about an average of $17 an hour before expenses. So you can see that as pay has come down, expenses have stayed about the same. And so overall, expenses are becoming a bigger percentage of a driver's, you know, sort of gross income, which is bad. That means they're earning less money. So I think it is a smart move to kind of try and, you know, help drivers out there. Right. So what have you learned about drivers um, in the years that you've been serving this community? Who are they? Why do they drive? Are they young, old, immigrants, yeah. moms? Like who are, who, who are drivers? Definitely. Well, that's a probably one of the most loaded questions you could ask me because the the crazy, you know, the unique thing really about rideshare is and being a driver is that there isn't really a typical person. People always ask me, "Oh, what does your audience look like?" and I kind of have to you know, it's like a 10 minute answer. So I'll try to give you the short version. But one of the nice things about driving for Uber and Lyft is that there's such low barriers to entry. I kind of joke that all you really need is, you know, to pass a background check and have a pulse and you can get approved to drive for Uber and Lyft, which is great when you're first getting signed up and started. So, I mean, I talk to drivers from all walks of life who are, you know, more on the part-time spectrum, need something, uh, you know, to like add on top of their day job income, retirees, people, that, um, you know, just sort of need a little extra to go with their social security income, people who are just doing it for fun. You know, I joke a lot too, that a lot of uh, older males tell me that their wives just want them out of the house during the day. And so they go (laughs) drive for Uber and Lyft and make some money and have some fun. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you also have the full-time drivers. And these might be people who can't get jobs elsewhere, who got laid off, who just, you know, like doing it full-time because it does still have some flexibility, even in a full-time capacity. And so, you know, those are kind of the two camps that I like to look at, the part-time and the full-time drivers. But from there, you know, it is predominantly male. I think that in New York City, taxi drivers, there's only one or 2% are female. But with rideshare drivers, it's closer to 10 to 20%, depending on, you know, kind of which uh, group or study you've looked at. But uh, so definitely predominantly male still, but there are a lot more female rideshare drivers than taxi drivers. So that's a little bit of a a breakdown, I think, uh, of kind of what the, the drivers look like. And would you say that drivers primarily are uh, looking at driving as a short-term opportunity or more as a long-term career that they're going to be doing for a long time? Well, I think that most drivers are pretty realistic about the fact that this isn't a great career. There are definitely a lot who have been doing it for years at a time and kind of figure out the system and they're able to keep making it work. But I think that's one of the downsides is of being a driver and especially working full time and depending on this income is that pretty quickly you realize that Uber and Lyft are not necessarily on your side as a driver. I kind of always tell drivers to remember that nobody cares more about your business than you do. And that's the thing that a lot of drivers don't realize, right? When they get into this, a lot of people are looking to make two, three hundred bucks a week and they're looking for something They're They're not looking for, you know, something huge, something full time. And I think if you look at the marketing that Uber and Lyft have done over the years, I mean, they just ran a huge series of TV commercials and it was all about the ultimate side hustle, right? It was, I remember one commercial specifically because it was so ridiculous. It was a guy going out and driving and having a great time and having fun. And then, you know, he made 50 bucks or whatever he needed and then took his girlfriend 
boyfriend out on a date. There's not really many drivers who use it, you know, directly in that, you know, in that way. Mm -hmm. But most drivers, uh, you know, they do kind of look at it um, as something that, uh, you know, I, I think it's kind of a barbell distribution, right? So you have a lot of drivers who are new and getting signed up and started and figuring out and a lot aren't able to figure it out because there is that variability, right? It's not like working at Starbucks where everyone gets paid the same amount from day one and you guys are doing about the same job. Some drivers uh, are able to figure it out and last for a long time. And then others aren't able to figure it out. And I think that's why you see such low retention numbers, frankly, with uh, Uber and Lyft. Right. Switching to the consumer perspective, um, you mentioned that you know a lot of people have come to rely on Uber and Lyft. What, mm-hmm. what value do you think services like Uber and Lyft provide? How is life different in a city when rideshare services are available versus back when taxis were the only option. I mean, I think you and I are old enough to remember those days. Yeah, no, definitely. It's, it is funny because I remember before Uber and Lyft were around, I feel like I would do, you know, you would do kind of anything and everything to get a ride places, right? You know, when I was younger, I would make my mom drop me off at places. <laughs> you know, this is, I'm, I'm talking college, right? So, you yeah. know, my mom dropped me off at a party and, you know, just all this weird stuff, you know, you would, you know, kind of one person would have to not drink, for example, when you go out or, you know, yeah. when you go to the airport, you'd have to call up all your friends, right? And everyone, uh, you know, there was all the jokes about, you know, are you good enough friends with someone to to take them to the airport, right? <laughs> and now you can just call an Uber Lyft. So I think the number one thing that they've provided of benefit or value to the customers is just more choice, more options, more ability to just, you know, if you want to go somewhere, you have that option. You have a super reliable transportation option. And I think the way that everyone uses that is different for maybe, you know, when Uber and Lyft first came out and I was using it, it was honestly a lot of time just to go out, to go to the bars, to go to restaurants, uh, to go to the airport once in a while. But there's also, I think, a lot of other side benefits or you know, not even fringe benefits, but just kind of opportunities that it's opened up for people of all different walks of life. And I think that's the one thing that people miss. You know, for someone like me, you know, I could drive myself everywhere, but there are a lot of people, too, that, you know, maybe didn't have any transportation options before, you know, whether they're older or handicapped or, you know, um, you know with disabilities. And I've, you know, that's been one of the cool things for me. I've been a part-time Uber and Lyft driver. And although I don't really rely on the income or, or even really need to do it anymore, I do it a lot to stay up to date with the app and also to keep my street cred, of course. (laughs) But I've met a lot of those passengers who have those really unique stories. You know, I've met, um, people who kind of didn't have a way to get around. I've interviewed people on my podcast. I interviewed a guy from Australia who, um, had lost his vision and couldn't get around and Uber and Lyft was amazing for him. And, you know, he kind of described all the ways how he called for the ride himself and how he would meet his, his drivers and all that. And, you know, it, it definitely I've hear, have heard a lot of those pretty cool stories. Yeah, it's really, it is really interesting. Uh, I think people who are able to drive themselves uh, easily and who can afford to own a car uh, discount the value of being able to ride in a car occasionally just when you need it. 
um, as a I mean, even, you know, I've even been driving, you know, late night, Friday night, you know, the bar, we call them the party hours, Friday, Saturday night. And I've picked someone up from, you know, actually multiple times from a bus stop. And, you know, I'm, if anyone has ever ridden public transportation, there are times when the bus just doesn't show up or it's taking a long time. And I think that it's hard to understand, you know, kind of how frustrating that can be if you always have a car and you've always driven yourself around. Yeah. But uh, I think that even, you know, someone who maybe uses it once every few months when their bus doesn't arrive on time or it's raining and they want to take a car, I think that is, uh, you know, some of the value that they provide too. There's been, you know, a lot of criticism of Uber and Lyft, um, especially from cities for creating traffic and creating more vehicle miles traveled, as it's called, Um, on the theory that people are taking trips that they would not have made but for the availability of Uber and Lyft. And I, you know, I kind of, I kind of think this criticism is crazy because under this theory, really, it would be better if everyone just stayed home, never went to work, right. <laughs> never left the house, never went out, and then we could really reduce vehicle miles yeah. traveled. So it can't just be that you look at these overall numbers of vehicle miles traveled or or number of trips and say, aha, there's more trips and therefore that's bad. I think you have to look at the other side of the equation in terms of the social and economic benefit for people being able to go out or live independently or pick up a, a late night shift at a job, how right. do you how do you see that um, from the, the trips that you're seeing? Yeah, no, I think it's a complex topic, first of all. So it, it is definitely, there's a lot of nuance involved. But at the same time, I actually, I've kind of been a little disappointed in the conversation around all this. I mean, it wasn't, too long ago that I didn't even know what VMT means, <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be perfectly honest, right? And when I start hearing about all the all these issues and, you know, it, it kind of almost to me, it just seemed like there's, I, I call it, it seems like there's a little bit of a war going on against rideshare from some in, you know, cities and the transportation uh, communities that I'm not as well versed in, to be honest. You know, I'm not going to a lot of these, you know, big transportation planning conferences or anything like that. Um, so I'm just kind of observing from the outside. And what's ironic for me is that I often find myself, you know, railing against Uber and Lyft when I'm talking about driver issues and, oh, you know, they could improve this and they could do better here. But when it comes to this VMT issue and sort of the the net positive or negative of Uber and Lyft on cities, I find myself defending Uber and Lyft all the time. So (laughs) for me, it's just sort of I just wanted to share that because it is interesting, right? Like if, um, you know, how depending on the groups that are fighting or looking at things, your perspective. But I mean, I think that, you know, going back to your original question, for me, there's no doubt in my mind that Uber and Lyft have been a net positive on cities. And like anything, I mean, I think when you have too much of a good thing, there can be negatives. And, you know, I mean, I've firsthand been, you know, on driving and picked up a passenger on Uberpool who was going one block. And when I asked them why they called for an Uber when they were literally only going one block, they said, it's so cheap. Why not? Right. So I think that there's definitely something to that argument, but it's not, I, I feel like 
in on the research side and maybe this is you know makes sense but it's very quantitative right i see a lot of numbers being thrown around with vmt but it's hard to quantify the value that you get from someone who now can go and has an abundance of transportation options and didn't have a car before right and so i think that it's just it's you have to go beyond the numbers and kind of understand what are the positives and what are the negatives yeah, it feels like if you're going to do these studies and do these analyses about traffic and the, the negative piece of it, then you have to just take out all the Friday and Saturday night trips, all the weekend trips, you know, first of all. Right. right. And, and Instead of looking key. at it overall, you've got to parse it and you have to say where and when is each trip occurring and what's the social and economic benefit? I mean, do you really begrudge grandma going out at 11 in the morning in an Uber to CVS to be able to pick up her own prescriptions? Like, really? We're going to criticize that because it's a, a trip she otherwise wouldn't have been able to take? <laughs> right. And I think that's, that's actually one thing that I feel like I've been learning a lot more about in the VMT argument. And lately, it really matters when and where these trips are happening, right? Not all VMT is created equal. And so I think you have to kind of understand, you know, I just did a little analysis for an article I wrote recently about, you know, what would happen to Uber and Lyft if the economy went downhill. And one of the data sets that I kind of took a look at and analyzed was um, the city of San Francisco, the SFMTA got a hold of a week of Uber and Lyft trips in the city for a full week a year or two ago. And I really just sort of like looked at the different times and the places that these trips were happening. And kind of what I found was it was pretty clear to me that a majority of trips were kind of like these discretionary trips, right? Going out to the bars, you know, happy hour mm -hmm. after work, you know, commuting hours are definitely up there. But it was, you know, majority, you know, what I call fun trips, right? <laughs> and yeah. those fun trips are typically not happening at times of peak congestion. So I think that that's, you know, kind of a, a key, um, you know, distinction. And also just the fact that, you know, I live in Los Angeles, which is not known for the best public transportation, but in cities like New York, uh, you know, that have an abundance of public transportation, it seems to me like those options are not that great. So I guess I'm not in love with the idea of forcing consumers onto inferior options, right? If yeah. Uber and Lyft have come along and pulled a bunch of passengers from subway and metro, maybe they should improve their services yeah. versus, uh, you know, kind of trying to hamper rideshare. And this is also something we saw early on with rideshare and taxis. When there was a big battle between rideshare and taxis, it, you know, a lot of the regulators were trying to regulate rideshare to be more like taxis. And I was thinking to myself, this makes no sense. People hate taxis. Why would you want rideshare, the service that people love, to become more like a service that people hate? I think you want public transportation or taxis to become more like rideshare and bring those elements in that could improve things for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not an accident that Uber was started in San Francisco. I mean, for those of us who lived uh, in the city and worked in the city for all those years when you couldn't get a taxi, Mm -hmm. You know, as far as I'm concerned, that industry had it coming, um, given how they managed their business, um, you know, at the time. Uh, so I don't think there's much sympathy for the taxi industry in the city of San Francisco. Uh, for those of us who, you know, couldn't get a taxi, even when you called and they said they were coming. So 
<laughs> yeah, definitely. No, um, I'm uh, right there with you. Yeah. So speaking of traffic, there's also been some debate about this question of what they call deadhead miles or yeah. the the miles that might be driven by an Uber or Lyft driver after they drop off a passenger and kind of before they pick up the next one. And um, as a as a driver, you know, how do you handle those miles? And is it really, you know, there's been some statements and some studies um, trying to suggest that it's like 2x the number of miles for every Mm -hmm. trip. It's hard for me to see how that would actually be true because, you know, a driver goes from A to B to C, not from A to B and then back B to A. Um, So it's, it's hard to see how exactly that's being measured or worked out. But as a driver, you know, kind of how do you handle that or how do you see that problem? Sure. Yeah. And I actually think someone just explained it to me on Twitter the other day, how they're getting at these, you know, two X plus multiple calculations is they're assuming that, you know, if some people wouldn't have taken, uh, if they would have walked or biked or some more eco-friendly mode over rideshare, and then you kind of multiply that by the driver and their deadhead miles, that's how you're able to get over two. And I'm not going to try to redo the math right now in my head, but that's just at a high level. That's how they're doing it. And, you know, I think for me, kind of, and that's why I've, I'm always a little skeptical of some of these studies and numbers just because there's so much detail. I mean, do you count, for example, do you count the miles that a driver, you know, a lot of drivers, let's look at San Francisco, right? Seven by seven. Um, most drivers cannot afford to live in the city because it's very expensive. A lot of the people at Uber can't even afford, you know, the employees <laughs> at Uber can't even afford to live in the city because it's so expensive. So drivers come from all over the place, you know, north, uh, east, uh, and south, right? I think west is the ocean, so they can't come from west, but they <laughs> north, east, East and south, you know, all the way up to an hour. And San Francisco is a very lucrative place to drive in. So drivers come from even farther than they might normally drive because there's higher earnings potential. And do you count those dead miles, right? If I'm a driver and I'm driving into the city every day, I mean, if I wasn't working for Uber and Lyft, I'd have to go to a job somewhere, right? I mean, most jobs typically are in the cities and a lot of people live in the suburbs. That's why there's traffic coming into the city and traffic going out of the city every day. Pretty basic traffic patterns. So I don't know, to me, you know, I would kind of that's kind of like the first part of deadheading, right? And so to me, I kind of almost say that that shouldn't be counted. That driver probably is going to be, you know, if they weren't working for Uber and Lyft, I'd assume that they're having, you know, they got to make money somehow. And then the second thing is that, you know, for a driver, when you are driving around, um, you know, so basically what happens as a driver is you flip the app on and you're now available and ready for requests. So you could be sitting at your home, you could be parked on the side of the street, or you could be driving around. And that uh, is basically what they call period one. Um, And so what that means is that I'm now available. So as soon as I get a request, I now drive to the passenger and pick them up. So that is called period two. So all those period one miles, if I'm driving and period two miles, that's kind of what we're talking about when we're talking about deadheading. And then of course, when I pick up a passenger, I pick up Michelle and I take her to, you know, the airport or wherever she wants to go. Um, that's with a passenger. So, uh, and then I guess after that, you know, now you go back into period one because you drop the passenger off and, you know, you're either waiting around. But I think what gets interesting is that, for example, example, in San Francisco, when I drop off a passenger, there's nowhere for me to go. (laughs) I'm deadheading around a lot of time because there's nowhere to park. So, you know, it's sort of like, I think just blaming 
uh, you know, the deadheading issue or drivers. I mean, to me, that seems more like a, an issue that the city could help with, right? Um, all of these Uber and Lyft drivers are double parking and they're all uh, deadheading around it a lot of times because there may be nowhere to park. They may not even understand uh, how the algorithm works and whether that's benefiting them or not to drive around. And will that give them a better chance of getting a ride or not? Right. So w- what can drivers do differently from your perspective to improve that? Uh, do you recommend that drivers always try to pull over and find a place to to stop rather than driving around in terms of what's good for them? Yeah, no, I think that's actually what's best for them. And if you've ever noticed when you get dropped off by a driver, oftentimes they drive away. (laughs) And um, I actually tell drivers not to do that. I mean, maybe you don't sit in front of their house because that's a little Mm -hmm. creepy, but you know, you pull up uh, a block or two away and wait for your next ride. Really, as a driver, you really only want to reposition yourself if there's a better chance of getting a ride. And you don't know for certain, but there are a lot of times where, you know, I think the default for drivers is to just drive around. And I think if they had a little more education and training, they would understand that, okay, every time, you know, I'm driving without a passenger, I'm not getting paid and I'm putting miles on my car, which is going to cost me. And I'm not sort of necessarily improving my chances of getting a ride. But, you know, this is one area where I think the more, you know, you know, you kind of talk and listen to drivers, the more you kind of understand what are the opportunities. And so, for example, Uber and Lyft both send next trip requests to drivers. So if you've ever been a passenger and your driver is approaching your destination, maybe you're a few minutes away and you see that the driver gets a notification from Uber, it's usually a little ding, ding. And that is actually Uber or Lyft lining up their next trip for them. And so it kind of, you know, it may not be right where they're dropping you off, but it is probably going to be nearby. And that, you know, helps eliminate uh, deadheading at airports. For example, Uber and Lyft have a rematch feature. So as a driver, when I drop someone off in Terminal 1, they're now going to try and match me with someone before I get out to, you know, before I pass um, the exit, right? So at LAX, there's Terminal 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. So there's a pretty good chance that you're going to be rematched. And to me, that's like an opportunity where, you know, rideshare is actually better than a normal person, you know, than what we had before. Normally, if, you know, I gave you a ride to the airport, I would be dropping you off and leaving. Now you have actually the ability to drop someone off and pick someone up before you leave. Right, right. Um, I was going to ask, you know, what else Uber and Lyft could do to either incentivize or control the behavior of drivers. (laughs) It sounds like kind of giving you your next ride before you finish your first one is the the most efficient thing. It's interesting because um, if if the drivers were not acting independently, right, drivers can do whatever they want. They can drive wherever they want. They're not controlled by Uber and Lyft. But if we get to a place where there are autonomous vehicles operating for Uber and Lyft, and that's a fleet that's actually controlled by Uber and Lyft, at that point, they would be using an optimization algorithm. It's, yep. you know, it's quite a, <laughs> a complex computer science problem. I think it's called the traveling salesman problem, which is, you know, trying to optimize all of these things. And so it seems like with autonomous vehicles, um, it would be a much more efficient use of the fleet and therefore sort of fewer deadhead miles. And people always say, oh, well, it's so bad now. It's going to be even worse with autonomous vehicles. But it seems like drivers are actually part of the problem in the sense that they they each are acting independently rather than being controlled as a fleet. Is that? Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And I think that, you know, 
it, it is funny because you, you you know you started off by saying that you know drivers have a lot of independence and I think that's one of the things drivers often feel is that you know once you start doing it you're actually controlled by Uber and Lyft <laughs> a lot more than you might realize but yeah. in this respect I think you're actually very you know right on that a lot of drivers they are acting independently and I think what the issue is that there isn't a huge incentive for Uber and Lyft to for example create pickup and drop off zones right they sort of rely on a lot of lot of manual inputs and kind of shift the risk or the burden or the cost onto drivers, right? You could imagine in the future when Uber and Lyft, you know, have these autonomous vehicles or they're controlled at a fleet level, they're going to be very incentivized to make sure that their cars are not driving around because that's going to be costing them, right? Without a passenger. But right now, you know, drivers, I think that they don't, may not even be First of all, understanding, you know, what their Mm -hmm. costs are of driving around. I mean, it's tough to figure out, you know, the per mile cost of your vehicle driving around. And we've got a couple calculators on our site that will help, but (laughs) it, it is tough to figure it out. And but I think at a fleet wide level, you can definitely do that. And I think a really good example that I could share is so as a driver, it's a little different, but as a driver, a, new, a brand new driver to Uber and Lyft, you can actually get signed up with the service with, um, you know, just an online background check, a vehicle and personal insurance. So you don't need to get any special type of insurance, but you probably want to get this product called rideshare insurance that protects you during that period one we talked about earlier when you have the app on, but you don't have a passenger yet. Uber and Lyft don't provide any collision coverage during that period. And if your personal insurer finds out you're driving for Uber and Lyft during that period, they also won't cover you and won't drop you. So it's it's called mm-hmm. the gap period. And it's kind of, I, I think it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah. I, I still don't understand how they haven't fixed this. But Uber and Lyft allow drivers to sign up with just personal insurance and kind of be exposed during that period one. But if you go through Uber and Lyft's vehicle partners, whether it's Fair, um, who will basically rent you a weekly vehicle to drive for Uber or Lyft has Express Drive program, which has both these programs been super popular. Guess what? They require riot drivers to have rideshare insurance for those programs, <laughs> right? Oh, wow. Because now they own the cars, right? That's or their right. partners own the cars at a fleet. So it's like, oh, all of a sudden, whoa, 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 little <laughs> risky to be driving around without that rideshare insurance. Let's make sure we require it. And right. I think that's just kind of like one small example of what we'll see on a fleet wide level that these companies will really, you know, and especially autonomous vehicles, all of these kind of manual inputs or shifting of risk and burden and liability that drivers are taking on right now, these companies will have to you know, shoulder all that. Right. So let's talk about another traffic issue, which is uh, something you mentioned earlier about kind of double parking and, and the Mm. question of where do drivers drop off and pick up passengers um, in downtown areas? It seems like that has a huge effect on traffic in downtown business areas. Can you talk about that from a driver perspective and what would be the most helpful fix in your view? Yeah, no, I'm ready to talk about traffic because this is something I personally, you know, think that, uh, you know, drivers actually, a lot of people are aligned on this, uh, you know, drivers, passengers, and even the companies, you know, kind of in cities, you know, solving the is- these issues of traffic. And for a driver personally, you know, the less traffic there is, the more money I make. <laughs> right. So, um, you know, I think that when it comes to pick up and drop off zones, you know, right now, and, and this is one area where I feel like the cities have really kind of passed the buck because a lot of them, I hear a lot of talk about, yo, you know, we need data from Uber and Lyft or we need this or, you know, they, they sort of are relying on these companies. And to me, it's kind of like, hey, it seems pr- 
pretty easy. You know, as a driver, I end up in the four same areas in LA, West Hollywood, Santa Monica, downtown, you know, every Friday, Saturday night. This isn't rocket science. Like you don't need any special data to just talk to a couple drivers and understand where they're constantly picking up and dropping off passengers. And when you go to those areas, you see that it's a huge nightmare to pick up passengers and to drop off passengers because there's lots um, of cars parked on the street and there's nowhere to pull over especially the more dense uh, the areas are, you know, there's nowhere to, to safely or legally pull over. And so I think that's kind of the issue for drivers. And then when you counter that with the fact that the passenger actually gets to rate you. So you'd imagine, right, if you want to be completely legal and do everything by the book, you're going to drop off some passengers, maybe one block, two or three blocks away from their destination. And if you don't know how to handle that situation, they may not take too kindly to you. So there's a lot of pressure on drivers too to, you know, pick up and drop off right in front of where the passenger is going. And that may, you know, cause even more traffic or more issues. So what makes the most sense then is to get rid of street parking in these areas, remove the parking spots and create a, a curb zone where where passengers can be picked up and dropped off. Is that is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, no, I think, and, and that's exactly what I'm suggesting. And the thing is, you know, I live in a city and so I know that, you know, when I go out to these areas, there's already a million parking signs all over the place. It doesn't seem too hard to add, you know, one more that doesn't allow for Friday, Saturday night evening parking. And to be fair, some cities are testing this. It's just been, you know, I think a lot took like five years to test it out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some cities like I know San Diego and the gas lamp uh, downtown district, they do this on Friday, Saturday nights, or they were piloting this. And so I think that there's some pretty simple solutions that, you know, you just kind of, I feel like there's not enough progress being made with some of these issues. And it's kind of like a lot of people blaming others where from the driver's perspective, like drivers are just driving, you know, <laughs> they're, they're out there every night and they're just like picking up and dropping off passengers. And they're very unaware of a lot of these issues. So it is kind of interesting because they are the ones, you know, on the ground, uh, you know, and so I just feel like it, it's important to, you know, not always do what drivers say, but to at least listen to them. Because, you know, I, I joke that if you gave drivers uh, the ability to, you know, set their own rates, they would probably price themselves out of the market, <laughs> make it so expensive that no one would want to take an Uber or Lyft. So I'm not saying that, you know, do everything that drivers say, but I do think like right now, of course, Uber and Lyft have a lot of money and are spending a lot of time and power and lobbying and all that. And cities have all of their conferences that they go to and talk about all these things. But it is funny, like none of the conferences I see or attend ever have drivers. I'm like the closest thing to it. So that's my <laughs> sort of personal mission in a lot of these is to get more people just talking and listening uh, to these drivers because that's one of the unique things about this company this industry is that you can see it from the consumer side of view but you can also see it from the driver's point of view and you can kind of see learn a lot about these companies from like being involved very firsthand yeah well it definitely seems like uh removing street parking which i understand cities get some nominal amount of but, of but meter I, money but it, it doesn't like seem friday, like saturday nights though you know yeah, it, and that's yeah. the thing like friday saturday nights like when i pick someone up at the you know at the bars uh, friday saturday nights at 2 a.m i don't think they're charging for street parking then and if it's in a busy area or downtown district i mean you're not i don't think you're taking away from residents so uh you know it, it seems maybe like i'm missing good, something yeah it seems like a good at least they should try it as a pilot program and and see how it works <laughs> 
Like I think a good kind of example is in the micromobility world where, you know, I think a lot of cities are much more quickly painting stencils on the ground for scooter and bike parking. Like that's the perfect example to me. It's like this is just something quick and easy and a test and a pilot. And it's like, let's see how this goes as opposed to just saying, oh, you know, we need to know where people are parking scooters and how they're riding them. It's like just use your eyes. Look. And yeah. See. <laughs> And you can actually, you know, start making a lot of improvements and changes uh, yeah. instead of you know, relying on others. So what about the idea of charging for curb access? We're seeing a lot of conversation now in cities. Um, if you were to remove street parking and have these pickup and drop off zones, um, a lot of cities are talking about um if if you were to pull up to the curb to drop off a passenger that your uh your fast track type gizmo in your car would mm. would scan it and you would get charged a fee for curb access and i don't know if that would be based on time or just for using the spot or how how exactly it would be done but they're actually talking about charging i think for specific pieces of curb you know like a parking spot but a curb spot how do you think drivers would react to that? Um, I, my concern is that they would just drop off passengers in the street rather than pulling <laughs> over because they would they don't want to get charged. Um, but w- would you would you think it would make more sense to have a flat charge for each trip that starts or ends in the business district or charging for curbs? I mean, you're recommending that drivers just Mm -hmm. pull over and sit there until they get their next ride. So I guess maybe if you're doing that, cities would want to kind of charge you for every period of time that you were sitting there taking up a curb spot. I'm I'm not quite sure how it would work, but how would you react to any of those as as a driver? Yeah, and that's actually interesting. I haven't heard too much about potentially, I guess they call them a drop off and pick up fees or waiting mm-hmm. fees, I guess, curb fees. I haven't heard too much about that. I mean, I think it's definitely an interesting idea and just sort of reiterates the point that you kind of really have to understand how a driver might react, right? Like I kind of, my first impression is like, oh, how do I avoid this fee? Right. <laughs> um, you know, if, oh, if I can, you know, I can double park and drop someone off in the street and it won't tag me, then I might do just that. And, you know, a good example is at the airports, there's actually a pickup and drop off fee of sometimes three or four dollars and it doesn't affect uh, drivers since it's charged directly to passengers but i've had passengers who want to get dropped off at the shuttle area to save that three or four dollars and then they'll (laughs) shuttle into the airport or vice versa so i think you'll always have people looking to get around fees or anything like that but it is important to sort of design it in a way that it achieves whatever outcome you're going for. And so I think in this scenario, right, like I would kind of just want to know more about what the intended outcome is. And I think that's what worries a lot of drivers. It's like they hear a lot about taxes and fees. And, you know, most of the time drivers, these fees are not to pay drivers more. (laughs) It's to, you know, make the cities more or to make Uber and Lyft more. And I think that if, uh, if you could sort of connect that to something that benefits drivers, you know, hey, we're going to charge a congestion fee to every car that comes on the road and it's going to make Uber and Lyft more expensive, but there's now going to be less traffic. So as a driver, you'll actually make more because there's less traffic and these fees will be passed on to the passengers. You know, stuff like that, I think uh, it might definitely be more appealing. So you're okay with congestion pricing as long as it uh, applies to everybody and not just the rideshare cars? 
Well, you know what? I think actually my view has shifted a little bit on this. I, I mean, at first I sort of, it, it sort of made sense to me. Hey, you know, rideshare drivers are out on the road a lot. And, um, you know, I think that it's okay to charge, or this is what I used to think. It was okay to charge them. But I think over time, as I've learned a little bit more about the issue and talked to more people, I mean, a lot of the road and sort of, you know, fees that go to keeping up the city, I guess, you know, what drivers are using, I think come from the gas taxes and drivers are already paying a lot in gas taxes because they use a lot of gas, right? Because they're putting a lot of miles. So I feel like proportionately it is already fair. And I think that what's what's what I don't like is that Uber and Lyft seem to be a scapegoat right now for a lot of the issues we're having with traffic and congestion. And I mean, hey, if I'm a politician and all my constituents are really mad at me because there's all this traffic and I can blame Uber and Lyft and then people are less mad at me, I could see the temptation of saying that. But I also see that before Uber and Lyft came around, there was plenty of traffic. And I think that they're not necessarily a cause, like the root cause of this issue. I think that they are maybe worsening it in certain cases and certain places and times. But, you know, fixing, you know, getting rid of Uber and Lyft today are not going to make all of our traffic problems go away. I feel like it, they're a small slice of a big pie of what needs to be changed and what needs to be fixed. So that's sort of my, my, my thinking. Yeah. So, um, you know, I guess an alternative to uh, personal car ownership and and travel in cars is uh, micro mobility. I know you've done some work uh, as a charger for for some of the scooter companies. Um, we we got some more information about Uber and Lyft's uh, activities in micro mobility. They've they've bought micro mobility companies uh, in their IPO filings. Um, how do you feel about uh, the usage of micromobility options versus uh, rideshare rides, the optimal length for a ride, and mm -hmm. how those two might fit together? Well, I love micromobility. I think that there is immense potential to solve a lot of real issues that rideshare, you know, I think they provide a lot of benefits. You know, like when you asked me earlier what benefits rideshare provide, like my first reaction wasn't like they're going to make traffic better, right? <laughs> but with micromobility, I think that there is that real possibility. And the reason why I say that is because of my experience with rideshare and driving and, um, you know, everything I've learned there. I mean, the first, you know, luckily, I mean, I grew up in Santa Monica, so I got lucky that I was sort of right there from the beginning when Bird launched and I saw these things on the street and I was one of the first people to ride them and one of the first people to charge them and start covering them on the blog. And I think what's stood out to me is the first time I rode a scooter, I saw, I thought to myself, okay, these are significantly cheaper than Uber and Lyft for any trip one to two miles or less. They're more convenient potentially, you know, once they get the right density, you know, if there's enough scooters, there'll be a scooter right outside your house versus having to wait even two or three minutes for a driver to circle around the block and get lost. Um, so they're sort of cheaper, more reliable, more convenient, and they were fun. So I think for me, when I kind of first saw scooters, I just saw the potential that they had in that kind of zero to two mile phase. Because on the driver's side, two mile and lower trips really suck for drivers. <laughs> you actually. How does that call, work? How does, how so does those that work? 
So those are minimum fares for drivers. So basically anything under around two to three miles or less is usually going to mean that a driver is going to make less than the minimum fare. And so Uber's minimum fare in Los Angeles, for example, might be six or seven dollars. Uber takes a service fee right off the top of about two dollars and fifty cents. And then they give the driver 75 percent of the remaining fare. So their sort of effective commission on a short ride is about 50 percent, which is bad. (laughs) Right. So. They make most of the money on short trips and for short trips for drivers, you know, you might spend a few minutes waiting for your passenger. You might drive a few minutes. You'll get your passenger. And then the trip might only be a few minutes because it's so short. And so there's a lot of unpaid time. So minimum fares are usually quite bad for drivers. So I think that it doesn't take a whole lot away. You know, it's definitely going to cut into those rideshare trips. But from the driver and even the passenger's perspective, I think it's a much better experience to take a micromobility, you know, whether it's an e-scooter or an e-bike and you know I know that for me and this is this is one thing that I think is a little unfortunate because I think I, w- I wouldn't say cities have been duped a little bit by Uber and Lyft, but you know of course they have all of their PR and marketing. And over the past five years, they talked all about the benefits of rideshare and connecting to first and last mile. And as a driver, I was always super skeptical of this <laughs> because if you've ever tried to pick up someone, you know, at a train station downtown during rush hour, it's a nightmare, right? If you've ever tried to call an Uber or Lyft when you get off of a metro and you need to go, you know, that last mile, there may be surge pricing. There may be, you know, no drivers available. There's a ton of traffic. There's nowhere to get picked up or drop off. And, you know, it just adds so much time and hassle versus the potential of a scooter. If it, if there's scooters sitting right outside when you get off of a train, then that's a great and easy connection. So I feel like there's a lot of potential with first and last mile with micro mobility that there really wasn't with rideshare. Right. So um, what about smaller vehicles that would sit somewhere in between a car and an electric bike or scooter, like a little pod. Do you think that there that yeah. <laughs> customers would be interested in, in that kind of uh, micromobility? Well, I think one thing that was hard for pretty much everyone to predict was how popular e-scooters would be. Yeah. Um, so you, I think you have to give a lot of credit to, you know, like Travis at Bird and, you know, the other companies that kind of came along and launched these e-scooters because bikes have never, you know, we saw them proliferate in China, but I I think the U.S. just isn't a bicycle culture, right? (laughs) And so when these e-scooters came along and they were fun and, you know, everyone loved riding them and they exploded, I think that form factor really helped propel a lot of their growth and popularity. And I just don't see any other form factor coming close. But what I think will happen is that since e-scooters have become so popular, it's going to make a lot of other people go try a jump bike, right? If jump would have launched a million e-bikes in the city, I don't think that they would have had as much success as they're going to have because so many people have now tried a scooter and they say, oh, wait, you know, on on those trips that are like one to two miles or two to three miles, like a scooter isn't the best, you know, because you're riding for like 20, 30 minutes. I could actually ride a bike. It's a lot safer. It's a lot heavier. I don't really have to get sweaty. And so I think that the e-scooters are going to open up a lot of these other modes. You know, I'm here in Los Angeles and we just saw wheels launch, which I don't know how they describe it, but it's sort of like a seated scooter, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, like a mini, mini bike. Um, And so, you know, I think that it's going to open up to a lot of these other form factors that would have had like no chance in the past to be popular. But I think e-scooters will give 
some of these other modes uh, a fighting chance, but I don't think uh, any will be kind of over over overcoming e-scooters just because uh, they're so fun to ride and people like them. So e-scooters are the gateway drug to other forms of micromobility. Yeah, you you heard it, it here much, first. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a much better way. I was like trying to think of the best way to put it, and I think you hit that one out of the park. All right. Well, I guess we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate it, and thanks for having me on. Look forward to uh, seeing what happens in the future. All right. Okay, tip your drivers, everyone. Thanks again to Harry for joining us. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can find the show notes for this episode and all of our episodes on our Medium publication called Smarter Cars. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.